Yeah, although you could say he really just cobbled together from the gospel. So I mean, we, we've been yeah. doing this unofficially for two thousand years, and somebody said let's let's make it an official order of fifteen things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so yeah. so today we're going to conclude by talking about the last two, maybe three stations of the cross. Uh, so if you've been following along with us in this series, um, we finally made it to the point in the story across all the Gospels where Jesus has been crucified. Some of the things, the interactions that happen there as different Gospels record on the cross. Um, but finally, all three, all four of the Gospels, rather, um, get to the point that there, there's a point where Jesus dies on the cross. I mean, in a sense, this seems like an obvious because Christian shorthand for what's the Gospel all about, you know, Jesus died on the cross and rose again, that kind of thing. So... Okay, yeah, but we're finally at that moment. Maybe it's worth us talking a little bit about what what happens in this moment. Uh, what's important about the way the different gospel writers tell it and how they how they color this moment, um, and and maybe even why it's important for our tradition to say he really does die and doesn't just like appear to die or like sneak out of the body of an earth of, of an earthbound human being at the last moment. Like there are other other faith traditions that say Jesus like it looks like he dies but doesn't really die on the cross and. The gospel's like, no, the same Jesus who lived and did all those miracles really dies. So what, what, what does it mean? Why is that important to hold on to? I mean, for my understanding, that the whole idea of him dying, you know, and we've talked about this in a previous series, I think last Easter Lent-ish time, about the atonement theories. Mm-hmm. You know, if Jesus doesn't die a bodily death mm-hmm. on our behalf, then you know, what, what was the point of him coming? Mm-hmm. And B, what does that mean for our salvation? I mean, it, the whole point of salvation is there has to be a sacrifice on our behalf. And so if these, Jesus doesn't die a bodily death, then that sacrifice is null and void. So, like, no matter what of the atonement theories one scriptural writer is using or not, and we, we talked before, like I said, that these kind of overlap and they're not mutually exclusive, but that all of them do somehow say that Jesus dying is somehow central, even if, if yes. it feels... Mm-hmm unpleasant or difficult that whether it's that sort of sacrificial language of jesus is the sacrifice and sacrifice die or jesus defeats death by dying that it's it's again it's 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 somehow death is part of it even if it even if it's the biblical passage isn't using sacrifice language there's still this idea of jesus defeats death by tricking it into swallowing him almost like like the divine mousetrap like augustine would say uh or this is jesus sort of upside down victory kind of thing and that even the idea of treating Jesus like the moral example of that Jesus shows us what je- what real love all the way is, that unless Jesus is willing to go all the way to giving up his life, there's always that sort of question of, well, he didn't die for us, so I get how well, you know, does he really love us that much after? But like, like it, all, all the various ways the biblical writers and later theologians talk about the meaning of Jesus coming, somehow the cross includes death, and you can't, you can't mm-hmm. avoid that or short-circuit that. And there's also the part that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Yeah. And so if Jesus doesn't actually die, then Jesus doesn't really experience what it means to be human because mm-hmm. death is part of life. 
Um, way back in church history and tradition, uh, when uh, church leaders, fathers and mothers were trying to figure out um, what do Christians actually believe? And they were talking about how do we understand this person who was Jesus, who, who is God, but was also born of a human mother. Um, and they were trying to figure out that whole 100% human and 100% divine. Um, there was a group of people who called themselves Christian who did not believe that Jesus was human mm-hmm. and was fully divine and just came down and, like, didn't even walk among us, like, God's feet doesn't actually touch the ground, so, like, just kind of floated a little bit above the earth and, you know, pretended to walk and, um, therefore only pretended or appeared to die because God can't die. And, um, that's when the church had to say, no, no, that's not. Jesus actually died, um, because death is part of life, and Jesus was fully human and fully divine. And that opens up a whole other interesting can of worms that later theologians had to wrestle with about what does that say about God then? And mm-hmm. like you've had uh, Christian thinkers and theologians over the years who say things like, well, okay, at the cross, the human part of Jesus dies, but the God part can't die, so somehow they're split there. Or others who are more comfortable saying they're one... There are two natures in one person, so when Jesus dies, God knows what it is to go through death. And then you have to stop and go, I don't exactly know what that means. Um, and and some of this may depend on what traditions we come from. Luther is real comfortable talking about, uh, I don't mean like glib comfortable, but folks like Luther are okay with living in the paradox of saying, we believe in a crucified God, not just the human part of of the Savior understood death, but God still like can't touch death because that, that breaks the rules. Folks like Luther are willing to talk about God being crucified there, and they're willing to let the chips fall where they may as far as how that complicates other the, uh, the, theology questions. Other folks like Calvin will say things more like, well, the human nature of Jesus is what uh, takes on death because God is immutable and in, unchangeable and eternal and can't really die, and they're, they're willing to keep things a little bit more separate. This might come down to whether you're the kind of person who lets your mashed potatoes touch your peas and your meat on your plate or whether you're the kind of person who needs to keep them all separate. Calvin ten, tends to be one of those, no, they all must stay separate, and Luther tends to be more of those, nah, they're all going to the same place anyway, you can mash them together. Um, you know that kid from elementary school lunch, right? <laughs> um, but the, the, the idea that Jesus dies, it's, we, we seem to be saying like, there's a good reason to say no, it's, it's important to say he really dies all the way, fully dead, all the way dead, like... You know, Marley and Christmas Carol is, he's dead as a doormail dead. But on the other hand, that we're not exactly sure what does that mean about the existence of God. Because nobody thinks that for three days God stopped being in existence, right? No, nobody, yeah. Nobody's claim about what happens at the cross is that when Jesus dies, there's no more God in the universe. And God either spontaneously regenerates on Easter Sunday or... Uh, I don't know, something else magically makes God come back, or I, I, I don't know anybody who thinks that there is no God after Good Friday. Um, but what do, what do you mean? I mean, there's a whole death of God movement back in the 60s, but I'm not sure yeah. that that's quite what that meant. Um, so, so somehow it's important to say Jesus dies all the way, mm-hmm. and even if that rubs some folks' sense of religiosity the wrong way, whether it's other ancient groups, or uh, I think even to this day, uh, classic 
uh, Muslim thought on Jesus' crucifixion is that Jesus doesn't actually die because the, the and and what's interesting is if I remember correctly, like basic broad brushstroke. Uh, Muslim thinking on Jesus is they're they're even willing to use the term Messiah to talk about who Jesus is. They're, that that doesn't have this, quite the same meaning that it does in Christian or, or Jewish circles, but they're willing to use that word for Jesus. But because he's clearly such an important figure, no God wouldn't let a, a true prophet die that way, and he can't die. Therefore, he can't really die on the cross. So there's a whole bunch of thinking of Jesus didn't actually die. It appears that way, or he just you know something like his spirit got out or something like that. Um, but Christianity has classically said, no, he really dies all the way dead. Now, to add complexity to this... Ah, okay. Um, That's what we need. Because, <laughs> you know, we like to open cans of worms and add complexity to things. Um, as we read the accounts of Jesus' death throughout the Gospels, um, there, there's this grouping that's often referred to as the seven last words of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But they don't all fall into one Gospel. Right. You know, and different Gospels have different quote-unquote, last words of Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, the one is, you know, um, it is finished, I believe it's in John. John, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, help me, what are, what are the other ones? Matthew and Mark both end with Jesus quoting Psalm 22, My That's God, right. my God, why have you forsaken mm-hmm. me? And I think at least uh, Mark gives it to us in the Aramaic or Hebrew first and, and uh, says something like, before he breathed his last, he said, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, I'm not sure that Matthew gives us the, the Aramaic as well. Uh, maybe he assumes with Jewish audience, oh, does he? I was going to say, maybe he assumes his audience already knows their Hebrew, they don't need to have it repeated for them. Uh, and then Luke ends with something entirely different altogether. Luke ends with, into your hands I commend my spirit, which again is an echo of a different psalm. So I guess it, no, no matter what in those in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, he's quote, he dies quoting a psalm, but what psalm it is is significant, right? Yeah, I, I, I always... <laughs> the, the last saying of Jesus, um, into your hands I commend my spirit, it seems so at odd with how I picture crucifixion yeah. because that's like something you, it, it sounds so peaceful mm-hmm. and like that's not how I picture crucifixions. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of like oh blood and gore and and agony and pain and then Jesus very serenely saying into your hands I commend my yeah. spirit and then dying. Yeah, to me it feels like the the whole way Luke tells the story feels in some ways, in to put it politely, in tension with M- Matthew and Mark's. Because uh, Luke also gave us that um, exchange about the uh, Father forgive them for they know not what they do, and uh, today you'll be with me in paradise. I mean, these are scenes that appear in no other Gospels and suggest, like, Jesus not only being in total control, but being calm and, like, he's just prayed the serenity prayer through the whole... I mean, like, that he's he's handling what he cannot change and he's changing it, like, he's accepting it. Like, th- there, there's a very, very calm feel, even though he is literally being executed mm-hmm. uh, in Luke's way of telling the story. And Matthew and Mark are much more raw. And the, the it, it's significant for, for Mark that Jesus' dying words are words of God forsakenness. And he doesn't blush about that. He doesn't like say, but he didn't really mean it. But like Mark wants to leave us there for a while. And because the other part of the tension for Mark is Jesus dies saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the centurion watching says, this was God's son, having watched the way he dies. So, like, there is this tension between he is both affirmed as God's son, that Mark's been saying from verse 1, and 
also being God forsaken at the same time. Mark to me seems to be like one of those like kind of like Martin Luther can accept the paradox and live with it. Like he he can let his mashed potatoes touch his peas and he's okay with that. Um, and Luke sent. It seems like Luke is much more interested in suggesting like a Jesus who is calm and serene through all this, and that that shapes what he leaves as the last words on Jesus' mouth in in the the, the crucifixion story. Random question, and maybe there isn't an answer to this question. Do you think that has anything to do with Luke's audience versus Matthew and Mark's audiences? Oh, I can imagine that, too. I think there's a lot of folks who think Luke is writing, like, as a, as a Gentile writer, trying to make Christianity as um, plausible and presentable and to put it in the best possible light. I mean, he's for, for whomever his reader Theophilus is, there's this, I'm trying to make a defense about why mm-hmm. Christianity isn't the dangerous, scandalous religion that the Empire thinks it is, but no, we're actually good, we're actually not trying to destroy things. Um, And I even think Luke is trying to uh, make a parallel, because by the time he writes, everything that happens in the book of Acts has already happened too, and I think Luke is intentional about drawing parallels between the way Jesus dies and the way Stephen dies in the first stoning, and that's not just because I share a name with him. I think think that parallelism is is an important one that Luke is trying to set up, that the way Jesus dies and lives will be reflected in the way Jesus' followers live and die as well, and the two parallel points are unique to Luke's gospel. Like, uh, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, and Stephen says, don't hold this sin against them as he's dying, and uh, Jesus says, into your hands I commend my spirit, and Stephen says, in your hands I commend my spirit, like much more like word for word there, um, or Lord Jesus received my spirit, something like that. But I, I think part of that is what's going on for, for him as well. And with Matthew and Mark both writing to Jewish audiences, um, and you know, we said that he's quoting one of the Psalms, it's Psalm 22, mm-hmm. my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I've heard, and my, I myself have actually preached this, so if I've been heretical, please correct me so I don't do it again. <laughs> But I think the purpose of Jesus saying those words from the cross is to remind folks of the ending of that song, where there's there's this rescue that God never leaves and forsakes us. You know the idea that God is with us, even in the most difficult of times. And so maybe that's why you know the, our Jewish authors writing to Jewish audiences leave off with. I think you, I think you can make the case that to invoke the psalm certainly would have in everybody's mind invoked the whole thing. And there's other points in Psalm 22 that have that that uh, have details that the image of, that the imagery gets picked up on the in the crucifixion. There's the whole casting of lots for clothing and. Um, uh, all, all sorts of other images of feeling like utterly God forsaken and other places in the Gospels they'll point out oh look the soldiers actually did gamble for Jesus clothing look just like in the scripture just like in the psalm um, so you could say the whole psalm is being invoked, invoked. I, I think that there's there's weight too in the fact that he chooses to to quote that opening line too that like where Jesus is at is being God forsaken and that um, it, it, to me this feels like uh, an answer to um, uh, like the, the ancient divine promise going all the way back to Abraham that God says like I, I will be faithful to you I will risk being destroyed before I break my promise to you and that like at this moment the very three persons of the Trinity are in tension with one another and that part of the way God deals with the problem of human sin is that God absorbs that death or God absorbs that God forsakenness into God's own being. And again, for me, I have to sort of go like, I don't exactly know what that means, except there's no length that God isn't willing to go. There's no point at which God goes, oops, that's too far, or that's too uncomfortable, or, you know, like the old meatloaf song, I do anything for love, but I won't do that. <laughs> like, the, there's no point where God says says something like that, but even even to the point of 
God experiencing God forsakenness. Um, that seems like this. This is what that that quote is is all about. And it could also be a throwback, possibly you know, Jewish history, you know, with the exile and and so many things that the Jews have gone through up until that point, and even still today, you know, there have been times that the Jews felt abandoned, and sure, forsaken sure, by sure. God, sure. you know, when they're slaves in Egypt, sure, um, before the Exodus, you know. They had it great in Egypt, and then all of a sudden this new hero comes around, and now they're slaves, and now he's killing off their babies, you know. So maybe it's, again, Jewish authors writing to Jewish audiences trying to say, you know what, I know in our history we have felt forsaken by God. Now here we have our Messiah feeling the same way. And you might even say, too, that, like, part of what it is to be human is to go through moments of feeling God forsaken. Sometimes because we brought on ourselves and we've done something foolish, stupid, or wrong, or turned away from God. And sometimes we just, through circumstances beyond our control, that's how we feel. And it, it does seem to me like whether it's specifically aimed because this is the Jewish Messiah or this is the one in whom God and humanity meet, the idea that there's, there's, no, there's no point at which God goes, oh, I can't relate to that. But even to the experience of being God forsaken, in, in, in the cross, God can go, yep, I've been there, um, which is powerful. Um, I wonder if maybe we should shift gears a little bit and talk about what happens next in the in the story. Jesus' body is taken down from the cross and is buried. Uh, there's a, there's maybe a couple of interesting little details in in what happens in that part of the story, depending on which gospel you're reading, right? So Nicodemus makes his final farewell appearance as uh, he's finally acknowledged by uh, John, the gospel writer, as a follower of Jesus now, but a secret one because he's afraid. But he helps front some of the money to have Jesus buried and get the... the um, the, the, the body down from the cross um, and they get permission from Pilate to take the body down. They don't have to break his legs because he's already dead when they have to break the legs of the other criminals. Um, what, what else seems to be important to know about that moment? There, there's also, I don't remember if this detail is in all of the Gospels but at least one of them Jesus is laid in a brand new tomb that yeah. like no one else has used before. Right. And um, I've always thought that that was an odd detail yeah it's a it's a brand new tomb which because most burial places my understanding at this time was more communal yeah i'm not sure why this was so important that it was so different i think part of what what the gospel writer is trying to to lay the groundwork for is to say there's no room to say later on that you've got the wrong tomb. Like, that later on, when they come and find the tomb empty, there's a certain amount of, like, um, well, you can imagine all the other counter-arguments. Well, they went to the wrong tomb, or they didn't know, or something like that. And there was, no, this tomb had never been used before, so they were, like, you can identify, this is the one. We didn't confuse it with another one. It wasn't, oh, I thought it was the third one on the left, and it was the third one on the right, that kind of a thing. Um... But yeah, I think I think tombs are used more communally, and I, th- I think if I'm if I'm remembering right, a lot of the the traditional practice in Palestine at this time, and this has to do as much with the, the actual lay of the ground as anything else, is that you could get yourself something like a cave where bodies could be buried for a while, and after a while, the body is exhumed when it's basically bones, and they put the bones in a box called an ossuary, and so that the same. The same tomb might have held multiple people over generations, and eventually their, their, the bodies are taken out and what's left are bones, and those are stored in some other kind of box or something like that. Yeah, because my understanding, because yeah. I haven't actually ever been there, but that bodies decompose 
really quickly because of the heat. Mm -hmm. um, I did go to New Orleans a couple of years ago, and the way that they bury bodies is, I think, similar, where tombs, it's all above ground yeah. because of the water level, and there's basically two levels. And so when you first die, you get put on the top level, and you get to be there for a while until the next person dies that needs to use your tomb. And then in which case, like, your body is on a slab and it gets, like, taken out and dumped into the bottom. Because at that point, it only takes, like, a month mm -hmm. or so. Like, it's very quickly. Um, your body decomposes until you're, like, just kind of bones. And then when you get dumped into the bottom, you continue decomposing until you just become dust. Um you know, like we are reminded on Ash Wednesday. Yeah. So it, it's a very quick process. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, it, my guess is that the why that detail got remembered is something to do with like the, part of their burial practice that would have been a big deal to mm -hmm. note as opposed to us where we're like, yeah, of course, a, a, a grave is only a one, oh, it's a single use one time thing because that's how we picture things. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that, that sort of gets into the, the geography and the conditions of where in the world they are and what, what the, the burial practice is. We do have... Um, ossuaries from other like first century notable figures in that same time period so it's clear that that kind of practice was like the standard even 2,000 years ago that someone would get buried in a tomb and then their eventually their bones would be put in an ossuary box as well every so often you'll get an, an archaeology news story about like they, they think they found the ossuary for Caiaphas or they think they found the ossuary for I think there was one for with the name James on it not long ago that everybody's excited about um, so I guess the other thing that is maybe worth noting about this part of the story in Matthew's gospel, Matthew makes a big deal about some of the religious leaders were upset that, uh, they thought that the disciples might steal the body away and that there might be rumors that he rose from the dead. And so they asked Pilate to have a guard set around the tomb. And so in Matthew's telling, not only do they have this conversation with Pilate, but Pilate then posts the guard and puts a Roman seal on the tomb as well. Um, which means to borrow a line from, uh, Jim Wallace, that when Jesus rises from the dead, it's an act of civil disobedience against the <laughs> empire, which I kind of like. Um, but, um, that's that's part of Matthew's really concerned with that there must have been floating around this counter narrative of Jesus didn't rise, the disciples stole the body, and how can he say, no, that's not really what happened? Well, there were guards, and the religious leaders were anticipating that, and they asked for the guards, and the, the seal was placed on the tomb, so that, like, there clearly were floating around counter narratives to explain that something weird happened on Sunday morning, and the disciples' response is he's risen from the dead, even though they had to be drag kicking and screaming to, to recognize that, and the women had to talk some sense into them and say, yeah, he really did. Um, but the, the other powerful figures around have to uh, have to have a counter narrative. No, he couldn't have risen from the dead. He, someone must have stolen the body or something. Or so, you know, that kind of thing. So you mentioned the women. Yeah. And, you know, again, to understand Jewish burial practices, Jesus dies, you know, around, what, three in the afternoon yeah. or mm -hmm. so. They don't have time before sunset because it's, you know, pushing up against the Sabbath and the Passover and all that, all those other things to fully bury the, the body properly. You know, they, they wrap him up, they get him in the tomb, but there's so many other traditions that go with Jewish burial yeah. about oils and, and things. And so the whole reason the women go back to the tomb on Sunday after the Sabbath mm -hmm. is to finish those practices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, so the part of the timing of things is, is what sets in motion the narrative tension of 
finding the tomb empty on Sunday. If they had had more time on Friday, they wouldn't have had any reason to go back on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point as well. Um, and the the um, the idea that the the day in between is the day of rest is is like to me it feels like it's this grand wink back to the beginning of the story of scripture of like that even here God rests and that I mean that's where the story begins too in creation it's after six days God rests not because God is tired but because we need it and so similarly here on Holy Saturday. God rests again, not because God needs it, but because we need it to happen, um, because we need God to be in the grave that day. Um, and there's something, again, like, I, I realize that to say these things, like, almost like we're, we're at the limits of what human language can convey, these ideas that God is in the grave somewhere, but in a sense, like, that's what Saturday is about, um, that, like, this is, the, this, is, this is the day where there's just rest, nothing happens, and things will start over on, on, in, on Sunday. Um, there, one of my, my favorite, favorite... Um, theology books of the early 2000s was a a book by Alan Lewis called Between Cross and Resurrection, A Theology of Holy Saturday. And his his notion is that, in a sense, all of human life is lived in that space between the the reality of our death and and Jesus' death and the promise of resurrection. Um, So that even though, like, we are not really good at well, how do we how do you observe holy saturday like we we do good friday stuff decently and maybe we do like an easter vigil on saturday but that's really just a clever way like no we're starting easter early <laughs> um but like to sit in that place for a while and be like this is we're we're at this place of death and of burial and we're not it's not even about the suffering anymore or the torture or any, it's just like being in a place of nothingness like wow that god lives in that is willing to dwell in that nothingness with us for a while that that's a powerful notion um and it seems to me that's an important thing that we need to be able to, uh, I guess, reclaim and uh, to, to to recognize our part of our faith tradition as well. Um, the same way that we're not good at lament, maybe either we're we're good at songs that start sad in the first verse and get happy by the last verse, but we're not good at at singing a song or praying a prayer that begins and ends in sorrow and yet aims it up at God anyway and says, "I maybe by the end of the song I'm not going to be feeling happy yet." But it's okay. I need to be able to tell you this is where I'm at now. And this, I mean, the Bible is full of those kind of psalms and lament, and we're not great at dealing with that. Maybe we religious professionals, especially, feel like this pressure of like you have to leave people with a smile, right? So you know, Sunday morning has to, and we have to end on a happy note. We have to, and I, I get that. I, I feel that pressure too. But it seems like it's important. Every so often, we, there need to be these moments of it's not resolved yet, and and you need to to let that be the way it is for a while. Um. We maybe need to acknowledge that the story isn't over with the burial, uh-huh. um, and the Stations of the Cross are usually just called the Stations of the Cross because you get as far as Jesus' burial. But yeah, there's resurrection, right? <laughs> so I mean, we we don't necessarily need to spend time talking about all the differences of all the details in the different Gospels. But what what needs to be said about completing this journey and not just leaving it and at he's in the grave? What what do we need to say about that? I mean, if you leave it in the grave, what? Where is the hope? Okay. Mm-hmm. Again, just as much as Jesus needs to die for Christianity to be true, Jesus needs to be raised. There's there's that line from Corinthians where Paul says, uh, if if Jesus is still dead, you know, our, our if there's no resurrection of the dead, we, we've hoped for nothing, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And there's sort of that awareness that, like, at least at least for Paul. 
being a Christian was not signing up for a life of luxury or comfort, right? And, and we live in this age of the heresy of the prosperity gospel that following Jesus will make you healthy and wealthy and your kids will do better in school and you'll get a boat or things like that. Yeah. The early Christians were under no illusion about that. And like, no, to follow Jesus is going to get us into more trouble. We're probably more likely to get rounded up uh, by, by the authorities, thrown in jail, fed to lions, something like that. And we're going to care about others who are suffering more than we would have otherwise. And so Paul's point is, if it, if it was just for getting as much as we can in this life, Christianity is not the way to do that. Um, I'm even reminded, too, in in these days where the coronavirus is in the news all the time, I'm reminded recently about stories from the early, maybe 500s, the stories about when there was a plague that was spreading across Europe, and Christians came out of hiding. um, Maybe it wasn't, maybe it was uh, earlier than the 500s then. Um, The, the, um... There were there were a number of Christians who came out of hiding to take care of the sick and the dying, knowing that by doing that they were likely both to get sick or to be rounded up by the authorities, and they did it anyway. Um, but like that, that's a piece of what the early Christian witness was as well. That it might not be that we get fed to lions, but because we are followers of Jesus, we're called to care for those who are suffering. And that, yeah, again, like there was no sense of to be a Christian was the path toward an easy life. So if there was something we were hoping for, it has to be beyond the grip of death. Because to be a Christian is to go where Jesus goes, which is in the midst of suffering and, and sorrow. And this is an important enough note that there are some icon sets of Stations of the Cross that will include that 15th icon mm-hmm. of the empty tomb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my favorite... Uh, icons like in the in the Orthodox tradition of the resurrection, like have this moment that encaptures both the surprise and the end of the sorrow and the beginning of the the joy. Like like the women, you'll see in one moment the women weeping and the tomb open, and sometimes you'll even see like a representation of Jesus like pulling Adam out of hell or something like that too in the iconography. And that's the beauty of a, of, of an icon is that like the artist knows they're not depicting a scene that was there in the Bible, but trying to convey theologically. What's, what that's all about there. But that idea that in the resurrection, this isn't just good news for Jesus. Oh, hooray, Jesus is alive, but the rest of us still have to live through death. But that somehow Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of new life for all creation. And the timing is a brand new week, meaning like a brand new week of creation. It's the first day of the week, but that means it's also a brand new creation as well. So um, if you've been joining with us all the way, all along through the way, you've made it with us through the story of the last three days, uh, the 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 great triduum that sometimes the church calls it of the passion, the the suffering, the death, and then the resurrection of Jesus too. We hope that your celebration and your observation of these days um, is, is blessed as well. And we hope you join us for further conversations here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you. Bye. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.